Welcome to Shekinah International Podcast. Our ministry reflects the five-fold ministry model Apostle Paul mentions in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. Our podcast features leaders from multiple churches who are passionate about equipping Christians just like you to walk in purity and power, fulfilling your God-given purpose. God wants to do great exploits through you, so enjoy today's podcast. of you, and for those that don't, I got to know Stephanie on the trip three years ago, going to Israel, praying for women there, praying for abuse and different things, just traveling through the country, praying, and it was good. It was really good. Um, I grew up more of a fighter. My dad was a boxer and a wrestler, and my mom was a spitting, fighting Irish woman. And so, but I was that second-born, sensitive, artsy, and, and, but passionate. And, and in, I remember in high school, just the way I'd express myself, my friends saying, are you mad? I'd say, no. Why do you think I'm mad? But I, I was, you know, I was just, I had an intensity. And, and like, kind of like John in the Bible, it went from being the son of thunder to the apostle of love, you know? As he got older, writing the, the letters about love, like God has sort of mellowed that, and, and I'm, I'm really, I love worship. I more became more of a lover than a fighter, and I have to say, Stephanie brought me back into the fighting ring. <laughs> so... But that was, yeah, I, my, my relationship with her is really precious to me. Um, I have to step back now just for a second. 25 years ago, really, literally 25 years ago, I met the Hales. And I know, um, I'm going to try to say this without crying. I know your faith, your prayers, your sacrifice, your leadership, um, have impacted the whole course of my life. And I just want to thank you for that. We met, Rosemary and I met at a Dunamis meeting. We talked the first time I was pregnant at 43 for Michael. And um, she walked over and said, just radiating love, she said, excuse me, but how many years young are you? <laughs> I was really pregnant. And we just began to talk, and she had her last child also at 43. And so it's just like an instant bond. So sister, prophetess, pastor, all that you are, thank you. Thank you for taking note. And um, I just have appreciated our time together so much. Yeah. Anyway, I am... Stephanie said, I said, how long do you have to talk here? And she said, an hour to an hour and a half. And I thought, never. I just had had read about Billy Graham's first sermon he ever preached. And he said, I had four sermons, and I preached them all in 10 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) He did move on from there. But, but, you know, I, I don't preach a lot. I've talked. My kids will tell you I can preach. But, um... But I can share as a mom, and I feel more like I'm here as a mother in the faith, showing out of my heart. And um, I'm going to talk about some things you already know, um, but I hope to bring more clarity to them, um, because I feel like in the season we're in and the season we're entering, it's, um, it's something that we needed to be rooted in all over again because it is the heart of the new covenant, and it's the heart of the gospel. So I called it Grace 101. I had pages. Thank you for praying for me this week. I just had a chaos of notes, because the Bible is grace from beginning to end. And there's just so much to pull out. The more you live in it, the more you see it in the scriptures. Um, I remember the days before I had a revelation of what grace was and reading the scriptures in the Old Testament, the New Testament, everything was condemnation to me. If I read about Cain and Abel, I was Cain. If I read about 
Jacob and Esau, I was Esau. And I, I did not, I had walked with God, but I did not know what grace really was. And uh, there was a grace revolution in my life. It changed my whole life. And I, I feel like we, it's often misrepresented and that we just need to really know because by grace, we're saved through faith. We have to have faith in what grace really is, what it really is, how it really operates. And we have to know this like we've never known it before. So this is a little bit of what I know that I know. There's a whole lot I still need to know, but there are some things I know that I know. So I grew up in a household. I told you with a strong performance-based approval system, awesome parents. Um, but, you know, we were, there was an era we were in, spankings and not gentle ones, the Marine Corps belt. Um, <laughs> shame, shunning, they were punishment for bad behavior. You know, because people felt like that was what would elicit good behavior, you know? It, it, wasn't, it wasn't meant to be an abuse. I loved my father. I've been in love with two men in my life, my father and my husband. But he, he could just be the most fun, the most noble person. But his anger was always one mistake away. I feared it like nothing else. His angry face turned me into a quivering mass of fear. And I, you know, I knew if the mistake was bad enough, there'd be swift punishment. It would be painful. I would be sent away to my room for an appropriate amount of shunning time. And, you know, to think about your sin and feel bad about it for as long as possible. And then you'd emerge, like, more ashamed, more afraid, feeling less loved, less safe. And it wasn't all what most parents meant to be imparting back then. But what I learned... As that, that sensitive child, I learned to be a man pleaser, to try and shape my outward behavior to what I felt like the expectations around me were. Maybe I could avoid punishment. Maybe, if, if the, that, would, that would be at least, maybe they would love me more. But at the very least, maybe I could avoid punishment. Does anybody relate to this? Yeah. Yeah. I loved Jesus. I loved him young. Um, I wrote my first worship song in second grade and sang it in church. And at 12 years old, I was one of the regular organists at our Lutheran church. You know, I loved my pastor, I, but it, we were the frozen chosen. I was the occasional choir director in high school, you know, as a high schooler for our church, I remember weeping at rehearsal because I knew, I knew, I knew there was more to worship than what we were experiencing, you know, while, while my, uh, my beloved Lutheran elders just sat quietly and stared at me while I cried, you know, it's like you, you knew, you know, there are things in me, I, I loved Jesus. I believed in his death, his resurrection. I longed to be loved by him. But also, at an early age, I was just one of those people, I felt the weight of my mistakes, um, the weight of my childish foolishness, which was not tolerated well in our home. All the things that made my dad look at me or respond to me with disappointment and, worst of all, anger. So this was what I call my starting place for how I read the Word of God for a long time. It wasn't a good starting place. You know, but like the angry daddy loved me, but I also had this growing knowledge that I was annoying and increasingly disappointing. And um, this was my starting place for interpreting God, for interpreting his word. And um, the sermons that I heard, and it was the wrong starting place. So... It, think about in, in the olden days before um, GPS, there was MapQuest. If you're old enough, you remember MapQuest. You plugged in, you plugged in your starting place and your ending place, and it printed out directions. And if you put the wrong starting place, even though the directions might be right, you're going to go to the wrong place. That's what it's like having the wrong starting place. 
for reading the word or interpreting what God, what you think he's saying in your life, the circumstances of your life, you know? So before I talk about grace, I want to clarify the starting place, um, a starting place. First of all, I want to say God is not mad at you. God is not angry with you. We hear a phrase, and I, I really I understand it. It feels flippant to me because it's not exactly true, but I know it's trying to say the same thing, that God's in a good mood. And I get that, like his love toward us, his joy, his pleasure in us, his delight in us. I don't think he's in a good mood when children get abused or young people get murdered. I don't think, you know, it covers all of God's emotional capacity. But, but he isn't angry with us ever. And I'm going to give you some scriptures to show you that. So the next, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, yes, our starting place. So Isaiah, the Old Testament is talking, it's prophesying about, thank you, the Messiah coming. <laughs> and um, and, and he says, you know, God says, I place all of your shame, all of your guilt, all of your sin on Jesus. I had a load most of my life. Um, and then um, in Isaiah 53, 6, the Lord laid on him the guilt and sin of us all. He poured out his righteous wrath on Jesus. Isaiah 53, 10, it says, and it pleased the Lord to crush him. Um, he spared no expense to pour out all of his righteous anger, all of his wrath that should have been ours. It should have been. It isn't like we can skip around saying we didn't deserve it. We did. But he poured it all out. He crushed Jesus. Who in here has a son or a grandson? And thinking about choosing to crush that child. It's unthinkable. But Jesus chose to do that with his father. In Colossians, it reiterates God was pleased. He says it again. He was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and then to make peace through his blood on the cross. It pleased God. That's, that's tough. How could a loving God be pleased to do that to his own son? Why would the son gladly bear it? Because he knew it really would. It really would fully satisfy God's perfect justice. We don't want God not to be just. We need his justice. We need it here. We need it for eternity. But we, uh, you know, before I knew the grace of God and just carried this load of shame and guilt, I still was a worshiper because the fact that Jesus did that for me, I could have thanked him for eternity just for that. You know, it, to find out that wasn't all, that we get here and now, that was powerful. But I, but I would have worshipped him forever just for that. But Jesus wanted so much to take that righteous anger away forever, once for all. And to enable us to enjoy the love of our Father without hindrance. Don't take it for granted, ever. Worship him that he was crushed for us, that the wrath was poured out on him, that we're not carrying that load of shame anymore, but even more so that we, he's enabled us, he's moved every barrier, every barrier to fellowshipping our Heavenly Father. No fear, no anger, no disappointment, no shame, once for all. No fear, no anger, no shame, 
no disappointment, once for all. If we believe what it says in Isaiah 53, then the promises of Isaiah 54 also are ours. Fear not, you will not be put to shame. You will forget your shame. You will be drawn to the Lord with everlasting favor and compassion. And then he draws a really interesting comparison. And this is prophesying about the Messiah. So, yeah, the next one. He, he said, as he swore to Noah that the earth would never be flooded again, he also swears to us that I will not be angry with you or rebuke you. Now, who has in their lifetime been lovingly corrected out of, out of love and deep concern? It's powerful. But a rebuke, a rebuke is a sharp condemning, you know, saying, that, you know, we're hoping, we're, it's, it's a sharp expression of disapproval. That's the actual definition of rebuke. Not only will he not be angry, he, that isn't how he deals with us now. He deals with us as a father. Do we need correction? Do we need redirection to be, to be reproved? And, and as we're going to find out, as we look at grace, transformed? Yes, because he is the absolute ultimate father. Yeah, our father, our father who actually helps to transform us and protects our destiny. You know? That's a powerful thing. Like as parents, don't you wish you could do what God does and actually get into your kid and fix it? We can teach them how to do that with the Lord. So Noah's family got the rainbow. That was to remind them forever that he wasn't going to flood the earth again, destroy it. To this day, we have rainbows. We see them. We remember. Um, why do we need reminders? Come on. <laughs> why do we need to be reminded through the centuries? Come on. Um, but... But what sign do we get to remind us that God is not mad at us? We have the cross. We look at the cross, and we know that our, our sins were taken there. But it's also to remind us that the wrath of God was poured out there. That is our sign to remind us that God will never be angry with us. He promises. He's not holding our sins against us ever again. He promises. This is a good starting place. So now we're going to look at grace. The New Testament confirms that God's anger has been satisfied once and for all. Um, Colossians 2.14 says, having canceled the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. Not looking out for us, but ruling against us with punishment and rejection. And he's taken out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. We don't know only what God did for us. It showed us how God feels about us. That was, that was just a revelation to me around 25 years ago. Um, that, you know, I loved Jesus. I believed he loved me. But in sort of a, like, could you get it together and be more lovable? You know, I know you'll become more lovable. Go for it. Uh, but, but to know that... Um, He actually loves me passionately. I, um, I have a dream I'll share with you later about that. But he wanted more than anything to have this unhindered love and fellowship with us forever, forever. So God isn't mad at us. There's our starting place. And 
It's a great starting place for looking at some of the challenging scriptures that used to be painful, so painful to me. Scriptures that used to, like, terrify me. It just sort of convinced me what I already knew that I was failing. You know, I was, I was a disappointing daughter, saved by the skin of my teeth, but not really cherished or enjoyed, you know? So here's a couple of those scriptures. And, yeah, next. wrote as the heading, are these promises or are they threats? My husband was saying how he hates texting a lot of times because you can't put your emotion, I mean, the little faces help, right? But, but it's not like seeing a human face. You know, we do our best. We get creative. But, but, you know, it's like somebody could text you, why don't you come over? And it could sound like, so why don't you come over? Or, you know, so what's the deal? Or it could sound like, why don't you come over? Can you tell me why you don't love me anymore? Why do you care about me anymore? Or it could mean, why don't you come over? I love you. Come on over. You know, it's like the scriptures. If you're not starting in the right place, if you don't know the person texting you in the Bible, um, it can, it can, read entirely the wrong way. So look at these scriptures. These are two that were just so hard for me. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You shall be holy, for I am holy. They're terrifying if you're looking through the wrong lens. You know? They're threats. If you loved me, you wouldn't have done that. If you... You know, if you know how holy I am, you know you need to be holy. Here's what holiness looks like. Do it. And when you don't do it, another load of guilt, shame, and condemnation. So these promises are threats, and we'll come back to them. Um, if you like, um, I used to read these in old, other Old Testament scriptures, and really, I just saw it through this lens of trying so hard, and then trying harder, wanting to please God, hoping to avoid his anger. And it, it wasn't, even as I loved to worship the Lord, I felt the need every time to repent with tears. I mean, for everything, all over again, and, and carrying the shame over every sin. I, I know everybody isn't wired that way, but I was wired that way, like every little thing, every little thing I carried. There is no more worrisome place to dwell than in the shadow land where you know, you know you're saved by the grace of God, but you are walking it out by works. It is a terrible place. It's an exhausting place. It's a humiliating place. And it's not what God intended. So here is the word grace. Let's jump in and let's define some terms because when terms are undefined, it's kind of like texting. We don't really know who the person is you're texting very well. So next, we're, gonna, we're going to talk about a couple things grace is not. Because I, I feel like there's been a lack of clarity through the years in songs and sermons and talking about grace. Grace is not mercy. Mercy is undeserved and unconditional love. In the Old Testament, the word for mercy, sometimes it's translated mercy, sometimes it's translated loving kindness, um, because it is love. A lot of times, even then, we think of it as forgiveness, but really it is the loving kindness, the unconditional. Out of that, out of that, Forgiveness comes, but, but, but mercy and loving kindness is the beginning of our relationship with God. His mercy sustains our relationship. You never outgrow mercy. Mercy is essential. I love mercy. God so loved the world. His loving kindness, it, it's the, mercy is the expression of this inexplicable love God has for his people, but it's not grace. So we often use the word grace for mercy. I really messed up, but he showed me grace. You really mean 
he showed you mercy. I didn't deserve to be forgiven, but thank God for his grace. You mean his mercy. Uh, Paul taught that we were saved because of God's mercy, but were saved by his grace. Ephesians 2.45 says God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Mercy brings forgiveness. His forgiveness says a lot about God's character and his heart, but it doesn't say anything about mine. It doesn't change it. It's something he offers us, but it doesn't transform us. By grace, you are saved. Grace is different. Grace implies power. Being forgiven doesn't indicate a change in me. Think of the unmerciful debtor who was forgiven all that money, and then he went out and choked the person who owed him a tiny little bit. He was not transformed by God's mercy. He tasted it big time, but he was not transformed by it. So we love mercy. We need mercy. It says that God's loving kindness and mercy is built up in heaven forever. It's one of my favorite scriptures, that it's stockpiled, and it's growing all the time. It's endless. It's boundless. There's no end to his love and his mercy. But it takes power to make us alive from the dead. It takes power. So next, next um, slide. Grace is not God giving us time to learn to obey. It's really just another way of saying grace is mercy. Um, it worked really well for me with my theory, you know, that God was rich in mercy and forgave me, then handed me a Bible and said, here are your instructions. Do it. <laughs> Learn it. Grow up. Become more godly. Become more holy. Get going. And maybe you'll finally make me happy. So the more, you know, the more I learned in the word, the more I felt my failure. Reading it with a wrong understanding, the more I met my failure, I, I felt my failure. The more I knew I was disappointing God, I worshipped him. But, I, but this is what happened for me. It made me feel disqualified for the things that God had put in my heart. I made foolish decisions trying to please my earthly father. I, um, I actually finished pre-med, and I hated science, and I started applying to medical schools, and then God interrupted me and called me back, called me back in many ways uh, into the arts. But, but I felt disqualified to do the things, like the only thing, I, like I felt like I had to give up everything that meant something to me. Maybe then, you know, maybe then I, I could feel good enough about myself to but nothing helped. I just became miserable and depressed, and I just didn't have any hope of changing. Okay, next, next slide. Grace isn't an excuse for bad behavior. Um, <laughs> I know I'm not all I should be, but thank God for grace. Or uh, I don't know if anybody's ever had anybody, like, hurt you, betray you, and say, well, isn't there grace for that? So if you want to say, well, there's mercy for that. But grace is the power not to do that, you know? The power to say no and the power to say yes. Titus, uh, you know, people will say, because there's so much misunderstanding about the word grace, like don't talk too much about grace because it, it gives people an excuse to be carnal, you know? And, and we, I don't know if you ever, you remember this, um, but you probably remember greasy grace. Remember that term? Don't call it greasy grace. Just tell us what real grace is, you know? Because seriously, um, we, we don't want to give people the idea they can live loose and carnal lives. If we talk about grace too much, I remember my Lutheran pastor when I was in high school, and I needed to know grace so badly because my life was looked so good and inside was so bad. And and he said he was talking about like the 70s and and you know the drugs and the dancing and the way things had changed. And he said, we need more law and less grace. Remember, it's like, like, I don't know what that means, but I don't think I can take any more law, you know. But, you know, he, he just didn't, he wasn't using the terms right. So anyway, we, we get afraid that if we, if we teach about grace too much, people will think that's 
they can be licentious. But God's people are doing a pretty good job of living carnal lives already, right? So maybe if they really knew what grace was, then it would help us to live differently. We need more grace. We need more understanding. Okay, so Titus 2, 11 and 12 says, For the grace of God has appeared. Jesus came with grace and truth, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us, and that word implies empowering us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Grace is the power to say no, and it's the power to say yes. Okay, next Grace, then, must have something to do with power. We already know the word charis, right? The word charismatic comes from it, okay? And when you talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the word charis is what you use. And um, it's also the same word that in the New Testament is translated as grace. It's a, it implies power, just like the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They're about power. They're power that God puts inside you to display certain of his characteristics. Grace is from the word charis. It's a power word. It's talking about power. Um, we, so charismatic, that word means, you know, the continuation of the power and gifts of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about um, the work of the Spirit through miraculous gifts. He invests in people. Miracles were occurring, and the word for those gifts was charis, the same word that gets translated grace. Charis is all about the power of God coming into and working through God's people. It's not on us. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, it would come on us. The anointing would come on us. But now, through Jesus, it's in us. And it's power. Grace is power. So Paul could say, I'm confident of this one thing, that he, he began this good work in you, he will complete it. Mm-hmm. Because it's him in us. It's his power. He's confident. And the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience. You guys rattle those off really fast. But just to meditate on each one, that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That is the power of the Holy Spirit in us bearing fruit. He's bearing it in us. He's doing it in us. This is so important. I know you're probably feeling like I've heard this all before and I know this, but I just feel like God is rooting us in this all over again. Yeah. So, grace is the lawgiver of the Old Testament who sent the laws on stone now living in us. The lawgiver is in us, living in us. God giving us himself, like he promised in the Old Testament was going to happen. And as he promised, we're empowered to obey. We're empowered to obey him from the inside out from the inside out. It's, it's utterly different. It's utterly new. Like the picture of grace in the Old Testament was in, in the nation of his people. His presence was among the people. He, he did miraculous things for his people, but he wasn't living in them individually. That happened when Jesus was going to go back. You know, he's having his last talk with the disciples. He's preparing them for his crucifixion. And he said, I'm going to go away. I'm going to go away, and it's better for you if I go away. And you know they were not feeling that. He was with them face to face. You know, they had their little circle face to face with Jesus. What if Jesus had said, I'm, I'm going to go away, but I'll come back, and I'll roam the earth, and if you get a chance, you'll have an audience with me, kind of like the Pope. You'll have time with me, but, but you know, it'll be rare. He said, it's better if I go away because then I can be in each one of you. In fact, don't leave Jerusalem until I come back and I'm in each one of you with what? Power. With power. Okay. 
I think about one time when I was little, we had a brand new high chair. I don't know if you all remember the high chairs. They had little steps that pulled out, kind of kids' seats. We got a new one. It was so fun. I was probably four. My brother was five or six, and we had brand new. And my dad at the time was in college full-time and working full-time and four little children. He literally slept three hours a night to finish college. So Saturday morning, my brother and I got up early, and I don't know why we did this, because we weren't just little monsters, but we took knives and forks in the vinyl of that chair, and we found out you could cut through it, kind of like butter. So we started making designs with knives and forks in the seat of the high chair. It was so fun. I can remember, I can remember to this day how much fun it was. It was just really fun. Like, just make this cool design. And then all of a sudden, I didn't feel guilty. You know, it's just, this is so cool. All of a sudden, there's a shadow in the doorway. And, and it's like the law. Instantly, instantly, something in me went, what was I thinking? This is bad. But it hadn't occurred to me. It wasn't like we could, we could get away with it. Or it was just fun to be bad and destroy something, you know? And um, so anyway, we learned, you know, the lawgiver came and administered justice because the law is a mirror. It's a mirror for us to see our sinfulness, you know? Grace, Jesus Christ living in us, provides a different kind of mirror where we see him and we reflect him. It's so different. It's so different. The law is good. The law is perfect. We, need, we needed the law. We, we needed to see it's a picture of holiness that we can't possibly attain to. And God never intended for us to attain to it that way. He always meant to live inside us and through us. Okay, so... Um, Okay, you can tell I'm learning how to do this. All right. So, um, let's go ahead and go to the next. Okay. This is my, my favorite, actually. Grace is the miraculous power of metamorphosis. Um, to change, metamorphosis means to, to change the very form or nature of something. Like, okay, if you were little kids, I'd say, what, met, what metamorphosis? The tadpole to the frog, the caterpillar to the butterfly. Um, but, you know, I studied science. I studied advanced science. And I'll tell you, scientists still do not have a clue how that mush inside the, the um, cocoon that the caterpillar turns into turns into a butterfly. They cannot figure it out, which to me is such an awesome, awesome, awesome example of metamorphosis, okay? So it says in Romans 12, 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And that word in Greek is metamorphosed. It's exactly the word we use to describe, you know, the ugly caterpillar becoming a thing of beauty. And, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. To conform, don't conform to the world. Conform is the picture of keeping the law. You fashion yourself outwardly. You mold yourself, you know, to, to the way the world does things. And and transformed and metamorphosis is entirely different. It actually changes the form of something completely. And so I think more than anything, I, I want you to grab hold of this because we put our faith in grace, and that is how we walk out our salvation. Grace is the miraculous power of metamorphosis. That's what we put our grace in. We're saved by grace through faith. We're saved by Jesus Christ in us, the hope of glory, metamorphosing us. 
It's, there are a lot of religions in the world, you know, and most of them, most of them have a lot of similarities. And, you know, you understand why people who don't know Jesus say, all, all religions lead to God. You know, let's, let's leave people alone and, and find God however they want to find him, you know. Because most of them have like a set of standards and values, and there's a lot in common among them across the board. And it says in the Bible that in every religion, every culture, there are people looking for God. There are people seeking him. They want to know him. They're doing their best, trying to keep the rules. They want to know his love. They want to know who he really is. And, but what is the one thing that's different for, for Christians is that Jesus comes and lives inside us. It's real. He's real. The metamorphosis process is real. It sets us apart. It sets us apart. It doesn't make us better initially. We turn out better. But, but it's real. It's what we have. We don't want to forget. We don't want to be conformed. We don't want to be thoughtless. And just let ourselves be conformed to things that are around us. We want to intentionally put our faith in his grace, in him, in us, changing us. I think about Buddha, um, Hinduism. You know, they came up with reincarnation because they know we'll never get it right in one life. They know. You're just going to keep coming back and trying harder. You might come back as a turtle. It's real. But you get it. I mean, you did a really bad job. You're coming back as this. You did pretty well. You're going to come back as a teacher. Or, you know, I mean, you kind of get it. But the fact is, we need the whole millennium and eternity to ever approach anything that Jesus does in us and through us. We'll never fix ourselves. God doesn't want us to fix ourselves. He wants to live in us. He wants to do it in us. It's his heart's desire. He loves us. He loves to be with us. He understands our weakness. He understands our frailty. He understands that we're just made of dust. Really, he understands. It's not an excuse to sin. It's facing up to reality and dealing with grace and dealing with the powerful one who loves us and lives in us. So anyway, grace, next one. Grace is the heart of the new covenant. In the new covenant, it was a mystery. The angels longed to look into. They didn't really know what it was going to look like. They didn't really know. Um, the prophets longed for it. People cried out for the Messiah to come. They knew things would change. They, they had inklings what it would look like, that, that their shame would be taken away, you know, that there would be this final sacrifice. They didn't really know how it would look. It was a mystery that God kept a mystery intentionally. The angels longed to look into it, but God kept it a mystery. So the new covenant is literally... Jesus Christ in us, the hope of glory. That is literally the heart of this new relationship, these new promises that we have in God. It's powerful. When we take communion, you know, we eat the body and the blood, it's significant that we take it into ourselves. You know, it's not something oil, we don't rub on oil, you know, we ingest something that goes into us. To remember, not just his sacrifice, but his living, resurrected presence living in us. That's the whole package. That's the whole package of the gospel. So, I just want to go back to our challenging verses for a minute. Um, I don't think... Yeah, oh, thank you. Yeah, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Um, knowing, let's look through the lens of grace. If you love me, I'll work in you the ability to keep my commandments. It's so different. It's so different than how it read to me for a lot of my life. You know, this is a promise. It's not a threat. 
This is a promise from Jesus. And, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Okay, what's holiness? What does holiness look like for God? He's set apart. He's set apart from what? Everything. Everything. The world, all of creation. He's, he, there's, he's, he stands apart from it all. And he's, he's apart from all sin. He's apart from all darkness. He has not a single unkind, cruel, tainted motive. He, there's nothing in him for us but perfect love. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty high standard. Now, he's holy. Y'all be holy. You know, you, in a way, we know that's a ridiculous interpretation, but it's how it feels. It's how it feels when we're, we, we got saved by grace, but we're walking out and works, you know, getting more and more and more burdened. You better be holy, because I'm holy. I'm a holy God. I don't want you around me until you're holy. And if you've never heard a sermon that approaches that, praise God. I have. It's hard to hear when you're already burdened. No. He's the one. It says over and over again, and even in the Old Testament, especially in the Old Testament, you're the one who makes us holy. The Old Testament says that. He makes us holy. So are we suddenly without sin? See, we have that tension that Satan uses to pull us out of grace. You know the saying in the olden days, we used to say, that woman is fallen from grace. And you know what that meant? That meant that she had entered into some kind of licentious behavior. She, but that is not at all what falling from grace means. It means that you stop living out of Christ in you, the hope of glory. It means you start living by works. You might even look good, like the Pharisees. You know, it can, it, you fall from grace, it can look two different ways. You can be the Pharisees, and you have learned to make yourself look pretty good, even though you're walking in your own works, okay? Or it can look like false humility. That was more like me, like I knew my failures, and so I lived with this false humility. I refused. I, I didn't feel like I could walk in my callings. It's this false humility because it's still saying it all depends on me. It all, it all rests on how well I'm, I'm doing in my own strength, you know? God makes us holy. We're holy because he's holy. We're holy because we're near him. I had a dream a couple months ago now. It's probably the best dream of my whole life. And I, in the dream, there was a man, and I couldn't see his face, but afterward I knew it was Jesus. And I was just standing by him, and I just was standing, like, in this love. I've never experienced the love of God um, so profoundly. Uh, you know, you wish you could just, like, go bing, and everybody could feel it. I, I can't, I try to put it into words afterward. It's like being cherished and being utterly, utterly enjoyed and loved and protected and just everything every human being longs for. I, and in the dream, the only thing that happened is I kept wanting to get closer. I just wanted to get closer to this person, that this love, who's just loving me perfectly. And I just wanted to get closer. And then I woke up. And you know how with a bad dream, sometimes you wake up and it takes a minute for all the bad feelings to ever weigh. This time, like, I, that love was still it was just in me, and I, I didn't want to wake up. I didn't want it to go away. You knew this is going to fade. This is a gift, but it's, it's you know, it's not going to, I didn't want to move. I didn't want to get out of bed. I just wanted to lie there and never have that go away. And we're holy because of Jesus because the Spirit's in us, because we're clean, because of Jesus, we get holy by just drawing near to him. You know? We, we get holy because he's holy. We get holy because we can get right by the Holy One. We can come. We can come in our time of need, we can run to the throne. We can come when we sinned. We can come when we're tempted to sin. And instead of running away from God, 
because we can't bear any more shame, we can run to him knowing there's mercy and there's grace. There's going to be a supernatural transforming, a transaction that's going to happen. There's going to be grace. You start reading the scriptures in the New Testament where it says grace. You start putting in the words the unearned power of God to transform me. Just start replacing it. It will change the way you read so many scriptures. And so here we are, Grace 101. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Such a great promise. Because you're holy, I'll be holy. By your grace, by your power in me, by your very life in me. Their promises, the promise of power to say no, to say yes, to run to the throne and be helped, to be metamorphosed in our thoughts, in our desires, like an ugly but beloved caterpillar that's turning into a butterfly. We carry his glory in us. We fellowship it. How, how do we? Okay, let's be really practical. How do we access that grace? Okay, you don't have to raise your hand, but who still has things in their life that need to be transformed? You don't have to, you don't have to raise your hand, but we all know. I mean, that's just real. Until we see him face to face, then we'll be just like him. You know, but, um, but we, we draw close to him. We fellowship him. We fellowship in his word, and we read it through the lens of grace. We, we, um, we pray. We practice the simple relationship of praying and worshiping him. And we stay close to him, and we exercise faith that Christ is in us and grace is operative in us. So I have a challenge. I actually have a challenge for you all. And you don't have to come up and say it in the, the microphone. But um, I was reading in the Old Testament recently, and I was reading uh, where they were taking the promised land. And there were places, there were, there were nations or tribes that had iron chariots. Remember the iron chariots? And, and so some of the people, they gave up. When they were iron chariots, they did not take their promised land. They didn't get it all because they were afraid of the iron chariots. It was too strong. It's like God has done this miracle and this miracle. He split the sea. He brought us into the promised land. The walls of Jericho came down. We've beaten miraculously armies that are much bigger than we are. You know, it's all a picture. That's all a picture of God transforming us, you know, now. But, um, but there are some things that were too um, intimidating to them, and they would not trust God and take the land like the Lord told them to. And, and it, it remained a problem to them for a long, long time. So um, here's my challenge to you, because I so want this to be not just head knowledge. I so want to see the body, the body grab hold of the gospel of grace, to walk in it to preach it, to impart it. Um, I want you to think of what might be an iron chariot in your life. It's like, God, you've transformed this, you've transformed this, you've done this, but this has always seemed too hard. You know, when I first had this revelation of grace, it's like suddenly... God began to change some things in my life that, like, you know, for 30 years of my life, I, it just seemed impossible. It was just like a sin I had to keep repenting of or, you know, a weakness I just had to learn to live with because I knew God could change me, but I didn't understand. I didn't understand how it worked. So I want you to think is of something that you might consider an iron chariot. Maybe you guys don't have one, but maybe you have a weakness that just keeps tripping you up. And you don't have to raise your hand, but I will. And <laughs> I want to, right now with you, I just want to walk in grace. I want to put faith with you in the grace that's operating us, in Christ in you, the hope of glory. I want to actively put faith there. 
and, and trust him that he can transform that. You know, the butterfly doesn't come out with a big glob of green goop still on its, instead of a wing, you know. It's, God is, he wants, he wants to do the whole work. It, it'll be all done when we see Jesus face to face. But we don't have to accept the iron chariots in our life. So, so I just want you, if you would, I'm going to pray and, and just wrap it up. I just want to make this practical. And I want to see the grace of God do something remarkable in each one of us. Okay? Okay? So let's just go before you, Lord. And I, just, I want to thank you. Thank you that you live in us. Thank you that, Lord, you don't leave us to try harder. You don't leave us to have to make a second go-around on this earth, Lord. Your kingdom is operative, and, Lord, it operates in us individually to transform us so that we can transform the world around us, Lord God. We believe that we're saved by your grace, this unearned, powerful, transforming work that you do in us, Lord. And we want to activate that. Lord, this thing that has seemed impossible, we say it's not impossible. Nothing is impossible by your grace. It's you, Holy Spirit. It's you living right in us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. The work that he's begun in you by grace, he will finish by grace. So, Lord, we individually, Lord, we put our trust in you. We put our faith in the work of grace that's, that's operating in each one of us, Lord. And we say, Lord, we humble ourselves. We say, this is something we can't do ourselves. We can't change this. You didn't intend for us to change it in our own strength, Lord. So we come and we humble ourselves. And we say, do what only you can do. Do what only you can do. Holy Spirit, change me, and I will be changed. Holy Spirit, heal me, and I will be healed. Holy Spirit, Fill me, fill me, fill me. We want the fullness of Christ. That's what you came to give us. We don't want, Lord, the things that are still lurking and hiding, and we're afraid, we're afraid we'll fail if we bring them to you, because we will fail, but you won't. Lord, and we ask you now, Lord, to transform the thing that's too hard for us in Jesus' name. Yeah, amen. And Lord, I pray that this word, it's, it's basic. But Lord, I ask you to make it vivid, like the, it'll, the seed will come alive, will come alive, will come alive over and over again. Lord God, that, that the gospel of grace will become our passion. To see new babies born into your kingdom who can start reading the word through the lens of grace that can start relating to you through grace, Lord, that can come without condemnation, fear, and shame, that won't get saved by grace and then get sucked into looking right and walking by works. Lord, we pray for a generation raised up now who understands Christ in us, the hope of glory, and they put their faith solidly there and they refuse, they refuse to conform to the world. They refuse to try and look like something they're not. But they'll humble themselves, Lord, to your mighty metamorphose in them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening today. Take a moment and ask Holy Spirit what he wants you to do with what you've learned. And remember, with God, all things are possible. So keep dreaming, keep praying, and simply obey, because God is good, and He has good plans for you. You can subscribe to our blogs, 
Learn about our speakers and even hear from one of our team members how you can take part in transforming a city, your city with Christ. There's no time like the present. Visit ShekinahOnline.com. If this doesn't excite you, watch for our new and God-inspired product line, a newly released book by Stephanie Butler, more testimonies from our listeners like you, working to bring unity in cities across the world. If you feel led to support our podcast, you may do so on our Shekinah.com website. Or if you would like to support us monthly, there is a link labeled Listener Support on every podcast. Until next time, we thank you, we love you, have a blessed day.